Welcome to the Q Dropped podcast, where we normally interview people who have lost really important relationships to conspiracy theories such as QAnon and Q adjacent ideas. Every second week, however, we are starting to interview activists and experts so we can better understand this phenomenon and maybe figure out things to do to to fight it. This week, I'm super excited to introduce to you a fellow Canadian woman who's a prolific activist in the fight against misinformation on Wikipedia. Just a reminder that you can see video of this episode on our YouTube channel. The link to that is in the show notes. You can also grab access to ad-free and patron-only episodes on our Patreon. The link to that is also in our show notes. The Guerrilla Skeptics of Wikipedia, or the GSOW, is a group of volunteers dedicated to ensuring the quality of scientific and skeptical information on Wikipedia. They aim to ensure the information about topics such as pseudoscience, paranormal claims, and alternative medicine is accurately represented on the platform. The group was founded in 2010 by Susan Gerbeck, an American skeptical activist. Gerbeck recognized the need for skeptics to actively contribute to Wikipedia given its widespread influence as a go-to source of information. The Guerrilla Skepticism Project was born out of this idea with the goal of promoting scientific skepticism and critical thinking. The volunteers involved in the project are known as Guerrilla Skeptics. They undergo training in Wikipedia editing following guidelines to ensure neutrality, reliability, and adherence to Wikipedia's policies. The group focuses on improving articles related to topics that are frequently targeted by pseudoscience or misinformation such as homeopathy, astrology, and paranormal phenomena. Adrian, our guest today, is the host of the Skeptic Zone podcast and a guerrilla skeptic working hard to eliminate misinformation on Wikipedia. So hello, Adrian. It's awesome to have you on here. We met at the the Weekend Reason conference in Calgary, and I found your talk to be so interesting. And I think that our audience would especially be super interested in what you have to say. So um, without further ado, let's get started. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you first, what you do? Oh yeah, I'm quite a busy lady these days. I'm a retired high school math teacher. I retired in 2018. And since then, I have met up with Susan Gerbeck. And Susan Gerbeck runs an organization under the About Time Project uh, nonprofit. And under that umbrella, there is a section called Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia. And she trains people to edit Wikipedia, essentially, and we are skeptical oriented. So we want to edit science pages, scientists, make sure their information is correct, but also pseudoscience. Yeah, so we, we focus on fringe topics like homeopathy, uh, anti-vaccination, those types of things. We cover anything that would be fringy, even ghosts. I'm into ghosts. I never thought I would be, but that's one of the things that I like to edit Wikipedia about. 
spirit photography, haunted houses, Winchester Mystery House, all those kinds of things. And But we also talk, uh, look at religious things as well. So I have done Yasmin Mohammed's page. I have done Samra Zafar's page. Both are ex-Muslim. So those types of things, all of that fall under the umbrella of guerrilla skepticism on Wikipedia. Can you tell us what a little bit more detail about what guerrilla skeptics on Wikipedia is? Like, what do you guys do on a day-to-day? On a day-to-day, that's a good question. So there's a group of us that are on in the not-so-secret cabal on Facebook. And we called it that because <laughs> we were accused of being in a secret cabal. So Susan embraces that kind of thing. And so we are now in the not-so-secret cabal on Facebook. It is a private group, so you have to be an editor to be able to get in there. And so what happens is somebody might say, hey, I'm too busy can somebody do this page? I've just, I think this is going to be somebody we need to pay attention to, or somebody will find a page and go, Hey, this page is terrible. There's all this information. There's misinformation on it, or it's poorly written. Uh, if it's a scientist, it's just a stub, which means there's not much information at all on it. And we need to beef it up. We know this person is better known. So let's get them a nice page. So people will post saying, Hey, I can't do this. Let's do this. There's also a list that Susan keeps of projects that need to be done. And some editors will edit multiple pages in a week. They're prolific. They're amazing. And others like me do a couple a year because we just take a lot of time. We tend to do the ones that are more research oriented. Like I have to read books for a lot of the stuff. There's not articles online. So I'm reading books like a research project, right? From high school. I thought I'd never Never would have dreamt I would love to do something like that as an adult because, you know, math, English, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be good in English to become an editor, that's for sure. Because what I do is I'll put my my newly edited page. We have what's called a sandbox. So you work on it. It's like a rough draft within Wikipedia. They provide you with rough draft area, I guess is a good way to, to describe it. So I put my rough draft in the cabal and say, hey, guys. You know, can you check out, check everything, give me suggestions. And within minutes, because we have editors from around the world with all time zones, I would say within 10 minutes, I've had at least one comment saying, hey, this is great, but we need to do this, this, and this. So it is a team effort. You're not doing it by yourself because as a non-writer, that would be really intimidating. And so there's lots of help and the help is gracious. It's not, (laughs) nobody's going to get angry with you for misspelling things or having bad sentences or, you know, bad topics. There's just great suggestions and you learn from it. It's a team effort. There are some people who don't write any articles, but just will give you suggestions and will maybe once you've published the article, they they might go in and correct a few things, but they don't write their own articles. So we have a wide range of people who do different things. And it's great. It works really, really well. It's very social. <laughs> we Sometimes there's fights on Wikipedia over a page. And Susan Gerb <laughs> is well known for saying, grab your popcorn and watch this fight unfold. One of the rules of Wikipedia is you're not supposed to ever grab a bunch of people that you know are like-minded and get into a dispute 
to try and sway it one way or the other. You're not supposed to do that. And so she's very well aware of the rules. And so she says, grab your popcorn, but don't say anything. Unless you've previously edited the page or you've had some involvement, stay away, but watch and learn. So we learn a lot that way. It's it's a very interesting place to be. Yeah. So essentially, um, the guerrilla skeptics on Wikipedia are editors that are like combating misinformation. Is mm-hmm. is it also like, I, yeah, in your talk, you also talked about like bad sources versus good sources. What yes. makes a good source? And that's a really tricky one. There's a lot of arguments online in the talk pages about what is a good source and what is not a good source. Generally speaking, you can say the New York Times, the Washington Post, local papers you know, that are in your community would be fine, but you still have to be careful because there's opinion pieces. So an opinion piece may or may not be considered a good, a good source because there's opinions that come out that are proven to be pretty wrong <laughs> in the long run. So we have to be very careful, even if it's not an opinion piece. So we treat each piece individually. And Skeptical Inquirer has come under attack a few times for not being a reliable source, particularly from people who are on the fringe side of things. And they will point to opinion pieces within Skeptical Inquirer as this, you know, they're not an expert. You know, they don't know anything about this and try and bring down Skeptical Inquirer. Luckily, it has survived many attempts at getting it delisted as a reliable source. But it's the same as any big paper, London Times, whatever you want to talk about. Any newspaper can be a reliable source and cannot be a reliable source, if that makes sense. There's just some that have more reliable pieces and some that, like, you wouldn't use Breitbart. Like, if you tried to use that, it's going to get lost, that kind of thing. So there's certain papers that you would never use and would never be considered a reliable source. And yeah, it's very strict. They do have a very strict policy, but it is open to interpretation. And that's why there's some fighting that goes on behind the scenes that people aren't aware of. (laughs) (laughs) And it can get very interesting. Our audience is the majority of them have like a, a loved one who is deep down some weird rabbit hole. And often we get involved in conversations with those people trying to debunk the things that they're saying. Can you give any advice to those people for, for identifying good sources for that purpose? Well, one of the things I use is media bias fact check. It's a, just a web page that you can go and put in the paper and it will give you a bias rating as to whether it's on the left or the right, but also how factual things are. So it will give it a fact check. And I use that all the time for Wikipedia. Is it absolute? No. You know, you have to still use your common sense because some people say, well, if it's too right-wing or too left-wing, you can't use it. But if you look at how factual they tend to report, then you can probably use it as a reliable source. And one of the things that's really great about that resource is that it also gives you uh, sort of an inflammatory language rating. So if they tend to use sort of a lot of adjectives, they'll, they'll say that because that can, that can kind of bias you to one way or another when they start using inflamed language. So I think it's a real, that's a starting point that I have. If I find a source that I've never heard of, because of course I'll be writing about somebody in some small town in the U.S., 
I don't know if this paper is reliable or not. I'll stick it into this media bias fact check website and I get a, an idea as to whether or not I can use it. So that's my main one. Uh, and also just, I ask in the cabal, I'll say, hey, you guys, <laughs> is this reliable? Now you have to be an editor to do that. So your listeners will have more trouble with that one. But yeah, reason to join DSLW. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, that's that's something that you also mentioned in your talk is that you guys are always looking for new editors, right? Yes, always. Because we seem to be always around between... I would say like 110 and 150 because people come for a few years, life gets busy or something happens and they leave for a while. Some come back, but it's always getting new people in and it's constantly ebbing and flowing. So, and there's a constant core that have been there for a very long time, but yeah, we're always looking and we really want people from other languages as well. Uh, almost 50% of all the pages we've written are in other languages other than English. Wow. So we, we really love the fact that we really are global. So if you do join, if anybody out there wants to join, if you do join and you contact Susan Gerbeck, there's a big welcome message that says, welcome to the cabal. And you will get welcome from around the world. I was overwhelmed by that. You know, people from Europe, all over Europe at that time, South Africa, South America, Aust Australia, and New Zealand, there's lots because a lot of listeners listen to the skeptic zone, which is something else I do on the side, a little bit of podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it, yeah, there's lots of editors from there because Susan Gerbic is on the show quite often as well. So it's, it's oh, it really cool. cool. Yeah. It was founded by Susan Gerbic. Yes, it was. Okay. It, it, now I may get this a little bit wrong because it's been a while since I've talked to her about this, but I believe it was Tim Farley who kind of suggested or made some suggestion that, Wikipedia sort of is the future of information and somebody needs to have a project that makes sure the information stays good. And Susan kind of went, oh, maybe that could be me. And there she went. <laughs> and I think oh, it started cool. in 2014. I think Stat Badger was 2014 was when they started actually uh, keeping stats of how many views that we have. So that was started around then. So I think she started GSOW before then. It's been around a while. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah, been she's a, amazing. a long time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she has a great reputation on Wikipedia. Um, people, she goes under her own name. Many editors like myself, I don't use my own name, though eventually if I do more and more talks, people are going to figure out who I am on, on Wikipedia. <laughs> but it... Yeah, you, you can be totally anonymous, which is very appealing to a lot of people. So you can be an activist without being in the forefront. And it's very powerful. It's a very powerful feeling for me. I, at least it was for me, because I don't know, you've obviously had some very difficult situations with regards to pseudoscience and beliefs and those types of things. And I too have had some of that. And it was around my health. I, I've, Chronic, chronic migraines I had. I ended up in the hospital. It was really bad. And people were just coming at me all the time with, you should try acupuncture. You should try uh, CBD oil. You should try all these different therapies. And I know they're, they're trying to be kind. They're trying to help. I understand that. But when you're in 
that process. It's very, very difficult. And I started lashing out, which is not the most productive. <laughs> it's not the best. <laughs> and it was very weird when I joined Susan Gerbick's group. I really calmed down because I was lashing out with my words on Wikipedia pages and it felt good because, and there was also this whole thing with the stat badger, which I didn't expect because I thought, oh yeah, I'm, I'm giving good information. I'm typing away. I'm going like crazy. But then when my haunted house page came out and had 50,000 views within a few weeks, I was blown away. It's unreal. We really see what kind of an impact you may be having with people. And you're never going to convince the diehard believers. I don't think that's who we're going for. We're going for the people who are kind of on the fence. Their friend says, hey, you know, I've been following this Christiane Northrup, who I talked about in my talk, who, you know, is very big into anti-vaccination. She's got really strange stuff about women's health. And she's a gynecologist. So she's got some cred, right? She's got credibility. And, but they say, hey, this person's really great. You should read her book. You should listen to her. But they go to the Wikipedia page and then start reading all the craziness. They'll go, oh, I don't know if I'm going to, they won't go. Hopefully they won't go down that rabbit hole. That's, that's our hope is that we get those the people that are kind of on the fence that are starting to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is, I feel like really, really important, a really important thing. Um, and as far as like lashing out, I think that every single one of our listeners who has a cue, we call them a cue in their, in their life, um, has done that. I was actually, yesterday we were interviewing Mick West. We got to interview him. Oh, I'm so excited. That's exciting. He's, I asked him, what are the, the biggest mistakes people make talking to their conspiracy theorist loved ones? And his first thing that he said was getting angry. And I was like, I think everybody does that when they find out that somebody they love has gone down these rabbit holes. So yeah. It's understandable. It's very frustrating. It's a human reaction to it, right? Like, can't you see this? Like, what are you talking about? It's, it, it, yeah. And you, and the, and sort of the preachy, you know, here's my list of facts, right? <laughs> it doesn't work very well either, unfortunately. And, and that's another thing actually that Susan Gerbic is doing right now. And it's in the, on our website, which is how to talk to people. And she's running. Oh. Yeah, she's running workshops. I've been to a couple. They're excellent. And I'm actually hoping to bring them here to Canada. We'll see if it happens. But yeah, we are trying to develop programs to talk to people and how to talk to people that are actual workshops instead of, you know, just a book, right? So practicing, thinking about it, no right answer necessarily. But number one, don't get mad. Number two, don't preach, right? Because it's not going to, it's not going to happen. And yeah, so she's been doing that as well. And I'm hoping to get into it. That's, she's an amazing lady, Susan Gerbrick. She has her fingers in many pies. Yeah, I should talk to her too. Absolutely. She might be better than me. <laughs> she will be better than me. <laughs> <laughs> so our listeners have obviously loved ones down the QAnon rabbit hole. Have you worked on any Wikipedia pages that have to do with those conspiracy theories? I haven't. The closest is probably Christiane Northrup because she certainly did promote the QAnon 
the whole talk, all the talking points. So she's the closest. Have we got people within our group? Yes. Yeah. There are people who are very focused on that for sure. It's, it's a big one. Yeah. Is that, it's pretty active. It's yeah. Yeah. It's pretty active. I couldn't say off the top. There's a few people I have in mind that would, would be into that for sure. Is that like, like, do things get like changed right away or what does that look like? That's a good question. So when we post something, when we do a revision, quite often they get changed very, very quickly because you can watch any page you want. So you can, there's a little star at the top of the page. When you have an account, you click the star, it becomes part of your watch page and you can get emailed anytime there's a change on the page. And all my pages, I have that watch on. So there are people out there who believe in this stuff, who have various things that are on the page or they're watching the page. So when we go in and we put in the scientific viewpoint, et cetera, they aren't happy and they will go and try and revert it or add their own stuff. And it gets reverted usually back again very, very quickly. And one of the things Susan quite often says to us is, once you've done your page, leave it, watch it for sure, but let other editors look after it because you've done your job. And so a reversion happens like what did with my Winchester Mystery House, for example, right away somebody from that tourist attraction reverted it back to what it was, which said that she that Sarah Winchester was crazy and was spiritual and believed in all these weird ghosty things. And it was reverted back very quickly by a different editor who's not part of GSOW because there's a lot of people, a lot of other editors, there's millions of editors. We're a group of 120, say. There's no way we can monitor everything, but there's a lot of editors that are very pro-science that are on there watching very carefully all these sort of fringy topics and they will go and revert. And if it gets reverted back and forth over and over again, there'll be a freeze put on it by an admin. And only certain editors then will be allowed to edit. Usually people who have over 500 edits, for example. So someone like me could go in and change it. People who just create an account so they can change it and put their fringy beliefs in won't be able to touch it. So the, there's, there's a very good protocol in place to make sure that that's protected because we don't want that kind of back and forth going on forever. The Winchester mystery page did get locked for 48 hours and then the person went away and then came back a couple months ago or, late, or a couple months later. I think it might've been a different person even, but with the same agenda. And they at least attempted it in more proper ways. In other words, they went on the talk page and said, this is why I need to make these changes. And then other editors came in and said, well, you can't make those changes. One, you're an employee. It's a conflict of interest. Two, it, you, know, you, you have no evidence. You're just saying that there is evidence at the tourist attraction. Well, we can't take that as evidence. We take evidence from professors, from experts, <laughs> you know, they list it all down. And so the same would be for QAnon, exactly the same thing. I'm guessing during the really crazy times with Trump involved, you know, when he was in power and still to this day, those pages are watched a lot. And I bet there were lots of attempts of, of changing it and getting the crazy information in there from crazy sites and using sources that are unreliable 
that would be considered by Wikipedia unreliable. So they would happen a lot, but I've, I've seen some of my, some vandalism is just people being stupid, right? Where they just put in a swear word or put something really silly in. Like I had somebody talking about chickens on the haunted house page. It's just really random. And there are bots as well that will get in there and take stuff out. So if the humans don't get there fast enough, the bots are seconds. So they can, they will see if there's a broad change without a link, say to a sandbox, or if it's just a mass deletion, all of a sudden of a bunch of information, the bot will just revert it right away within seconds. So it's pretty well, pretty well done. It's pretty amazing, actually. That's cool. Yeah. It's interesting because when I was younger, I was like 19, 20, um, which was forever ago. <laughs> it was, I was really interested in the Winchester Mystery House. And I, there's a couple of times we drove down to California and, um, and we intended on going there and something got in the way that one time my, my transmission fell out of my car and we oh, had to bus home. And another one, we overshot it. We weren't paying attention to the, this was before, obviously before, GPS. you know, Google maps and all that stuff. We we're relying on the paper maps, right? So we overshot it by like two hours and we didn't want to go back. So we always <laughs> joked that it was the curse. that wouldn't let us go there. <laughs> but awesome. it's interesting because I, like I lost interest over the years. I haven't really looked into it at all too much. And, um, I, d I didn't know until I heard your talk that she actually wasn't crazy and into all of this spiritual stuff. Yeah. I, I believed that. I totally believed that she was, yeah. she was, um, you know, doing the seances at night and stuff. <laughs> she, there's been many books about her. There's so many articles. If you type in Winchester Mystery House, there's a lot of articles about how, she was a crazy woman. And, and you can imagine how frustrating that is to the family, to the employees, employees, families, to neighbors who knew her. It, it's harmful. People say, well, what's the harm? Maybe a hundred years later, it's not so harmful, but she still has relatives that are alive. And for me, as a woman who was, is into math, I would hate it if my legacy was that I'm a crazy woman who held seances. I, I don't like the idea of that. So it made me mad when I, when I've heard about it. So, and because I'm into the ghosty things, it was an obvious fit for me when, and that was, a, that was one, I don't know. Do you know Brian Dunning from Skeptoid? He did a podcast about the woman. And he was the one that alerted Susan said, Hey, you know, the Wikipedia page has all these incorrect facts on it. It needs to be redone. And so it was posted in the cabal. Hey, Brian wants, says this is no good. Who wants to take it on? And so I took it on and that's how things happen. We, you know, we don't necessarily know there's going to be a bad page out there. There's millions of pages, billions, however many pages are out there, but Somebody will alert us, hey, this page doesn't look great. Can somebody fix it? Sometimes we can, and sometimes we can't because we can't get enough sources. So it just all depends on how many sources we have. And the book that I talked about by Mary Jo Ignafo, that was huge for us being able to revamp that page. 
because before then it was all this stuff about ghosts and, you know, they, and usually not great resources. Like it wasn't the New York Times that was writing about it. It was usually just small little papers who wanted to embrace the ghost story, right? And continue that lore. So that book was a huge, huge thing. Now, others have written about it as well. So it wasn't just her. You can't just have a one book article. It just doesn't work. So there were others. Luckily, uh, Kenny Biddle had written Joe Nickel, uh, Owen Davies. There's a whole bunch of people that are historians or people who are well-known paranormal investigators who had written about it, luckily. So we were able to change the page and it stuck. That's cool. Just for the sake of our listeners, so they're not confused, tell us why Sarah Winchester built the stuff that that was in that house. Because there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense in that house. There's a lot of things. So her and her husband, when they lived in the Boston area, so New Haven is where she married uh, her husband, who was of the Winchester Firearms Company. So he was the owner of that company. And her and her husband had a little bit of a hobby called architecture and design. And they loved trying to build things. And they they built a home in New Haven along with an architect. So it wasn't just them on their own, but they just sort of embraced it. And her husband died shortly after, which devastated her. And according to lore, she went to a medium in Boston and... The medium told her she had to move to California and continue building a house and to house all the ghosts that were of people who were killed by the Winchester rifles. So there was this sort of a guilt, um, kind of a guilty association. Like she was feeling guilty about having this company, which is not true either. So the medium bit, no evidence that that medium even existed. And people have looked in the directors of mediums for that area for that time. No, and they have a name. I've forgotten what the name is. I think it's Harry Coombs or something like that. Something close to that. Can't find that person. Non-existent. And that lore actually was developed in the 1960s when somebody wrote a book. So somebody probably made it up. (laughs) Nothing before then has, there's nothing at all in in the lore that can be found about this so-called medium that she visited. So there's the first bit. So then she moved, she did move to California, but they think it's because her doctor told her it would be good for her rheumatoid, rheumatoid arthritis. She was quite ill and they said the climate would be good. And it was really advertised at that time. California, moved to California. There's this, it's a great place to live. So there was a lot of push to move west, and she was one of those people. And when she got there, she had this huge inheritance from her husband, who had just died, and she still had this little hobby she had, which was architecture. So she started building a house. She bought a property that had a little farmhouse on it, and then she started expanding. And because she had no skill in architecture, it was just kind of trial and error. And so she would build a room apparently and it wouldn't be bright enough. So she'd change it. She'd either tear it down or put windows in or, and then she would build an expansion that would wrap around. And so you'd have a door opening to a wall because she had built this house just on a whim. And she had a lot of really great innovations And one of the innovations they had on an upper floor was a garden room. 
and you would water the plants and then the water would run down the floor and there's these trap doors that would pipe the water out to the garden outside. But in the lore of the house, for it's it's spooky because there's these mysterious trap doors that she had. Who knows why? She was trying to scat, uh, catch the spirits, you know, those types of things. But no, it was a garden room that <laughs> would overflow with water and the water would run down and go into these hatches and run along the pipes into the garden. It was really clever. So really innovative stuff, not ghostly. There is actually an explanation. <laughs> and one of the other ones that came out as a, a story, a rumor while she was building the house was that she was building it in such a way to trap and confuse the ghosts so they couldn't find her. <laughs> no, that's not why. She she just didn't have a an architectural background. I mean, you weren't allowed as a woman to go to school as an architect. So she had to kind of just wing it. And then the other thing that happened was in 1906, I believe it is, the San Francisco earthquake happened. And at that time, before that happened, it was up to, I think, seven stories. She had a seven-story tower, but most of the house, I believe, was four or five stories high. And anything beyond level two was gone, was wiped out. And so any stairs that went up were then boarded over so that no more damage could could happen. So the stairs to nowhere used to be stairs to an upper floor. <laughs> not she's not just a crazy woman building crazy stuff like they say in the tour apparently. I haven't been on a tour either. I want to go. So maybe you and I will have to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> I, after this, I really want to go. I want to see this house that and, and hear the tour. Hear the hear if what something gets in the way this time. I will believe. Yes. <laughs> 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 exactly. Well, and I did on my on the Skeptic Zone podcast, I did a little bit of uh, my very first bit actually was that bad things happen in threes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it would fall in my line. My mom used to that. say that all the yeah. time. Bad yeah. things happen in threes. And then I discovered when I was researching that, that good things apparently happen in threes too. Did you know that? I didn't know that, but <laughs> some people believe good things happen in threes. So which one? It depends you know. on how long you keep counting. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the arbitrary number. You stop after three, then yeah, they, yeah, they exactly. happen in threes. Exactly. <laughs> we can reset the count for sure. But yeah, so that's the main reason that the house was so crazy is because one, she had an interest in architecture and she made mistakes. And two, there was an earthquake. And after the earthquake, she never built anymore. She just covered things up to protect the house as it was. And she was actually, her health was failing, so she was not able to. And at that point, she just focused on her investments and apparently did brilliantly with that. Brilliant investor, very good with money. Oh, and the other thing that often is said is that she had this guilt, as I said, about the people killed by Winchester rifles, but highly unlikely, according to Mary Jo Ignafo, because the culture at that time, it was you were proud to own a Winchester rifle, and there wasn't a lot of guilt. That guilt is more of a modern day association versus something that was true at that time, or even just even later after she died. But for her generation, this is not an issue. So they don't believe she had any guilt about being an owner, a stock owner of that company. So it's another little myth okay. that was out there. That's interesting. Yeah, it wasn't until your talk 
literally two weeks ago that I knew that she was not crazy and doing well, those seances every night. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of thinking, do people know about this? But I guess not. Not necessarily. So it's good to know. It, it used to be on TV all the time, like in the, those, um, you know, the 10 most haunted places in America and stuff like that on like Discovery or whatever. And I, I used to love watching those shows. Yeah. And it almost always makes the top 10 list. Always. And it's, there's been movies made about her. Of course, they take the lore side, not the, not the actual history side. And what I find really interesting with that, and I'd like to know your point or take on it. I find the actual story just as fascinating. In fact, maybe more so. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. You know, here's a woman before ahead of her time, essentially. Not only trying to do architecture, but also becoming really good at finances. So both of those things were very much ahead of her time. So she's a, a woman to be admired instead of vilified, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I always had like a really um like I just felt bad for her whenever I heard the stories of her feeling all this guilt and she was doing these seances and all of this stuff. And she just, it just felt like she was living in misery and it's good to know that that's not necessarily the case. So, yeah. And part of the reason that lore built up is because she had some misery and that was her health. And so she did become quite reclusive, but most likely because her mobility was affected and not because she was a crazy woman with guilt, filled with guilt. There's a reason for her being reclusive. And that just fed the rumors of the time. So you can see how it happened, yeah. which is really unfortunate. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it, uh, it's uh, that's something that we battle with even today, right? Judging people without really knowing everything about them. I think that's a modern day issue as well. Very much so. It's... Yeah, everything's so polarized and it's like I mean, well my talk at the at the conference was about how things are not just some things are not just a difference of opinion, but often when it is just a difference of opinion, it's 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 enough for people to be like, "No, I don't want to to know anything else about you. I've already judged you." Right. So, a lot of our the cues that are in our lives um, have been radicalized online through the wellness community. Um, I was wondering if you've tackled any misinformation on pages to do with natural remedies, holistic remedies, or homeopathy. Yes, definitely a big part of the gorilla skepticism on Wikipedia. And the one article again that I will name is Christiane Northrup. So she kind of, it's interesting you say that, that they came through the wellness. That's where she started. She, she was really the wellness guru. She was on Oprah Winfrey. She was selling the craziest information. Like the thing about thyroid is because we're repressing, women are repressing what we can't say. Therefore our thyroids are bad. Like what's that? Just speak out and then your thyroid gets better. I didn't understand that. But... Well, then my thyroid should be great because I never <laughs> shut up. <laughs> We're going to be good with our thyroids forever. But so that's the one that I did. And that was a big page because there was just so much about her. And, but there are others definitely who focus on that and something moving forward. I'm in the process right now of writing Sarah Winchester's page not about the house, but about her, her life, which is fascinating. When I do that, I think I'm going to head back into that whole alt med 
area, but there are lots of people who cover that within our group for sure. Uh, I know one of the ones that was was done by our group, I'm pretty sure was the power bands. Did you, you know about the, you know, if you put the band on, you're going to play golf better. A lot of golfers wore them. You're going to be a better sports player. Your balance is better. Your health is better. And Richard Saunders from Australia, the Skeptic Zone podcast, he was instrumental in having those removed or a company not doing too well in Australia because I think it came out of Australia originally, but they, it made it all the way around the world. So that's a page that was definitely one that if we didn't write it, we were certainly updating it and making sure the information was valid. But yes, and I, I've done, I mean, I'm talking about just the pages that I've done where I've done started from scratch or completely revamped it. I've done lots of little paragraphs added here and there. I'll see something written by Jennifer Gunter, who is an obstetrician from, she's from Calgary, not Calgary, maybe Calgary, but Alberta. I know she's from Alberta and she lives in California, I believe now. And she took on Gwyneth Paltrow's goop big time when she was selling the vagina eggs <laughs> and, and the steaming, <laughs> the, the, some of the craziness. And so there was something that came out, I don't know, about a year and a half ago about a, a, a feminine product that she was like, this is terrible. And there were other gynecologists who also said, this is terrible. So I went on the Vagisil page typed away. <laughs> I think it's still there. So yeah, I'll just add a little paragraph whenever I see this kind of stuff. So I added it to Jen Gunter's page and I added it to the Vagisil page. So yeah, we're doing that constantly, just little tiny edits. So what you saw with regards to my $1.4 million, million dollars. Oh, I love that. My 1.4 million edits <laughs> or views that I've had because of my edits. Those are just for the full uh, full articles. They're not for the little bits that we do when something comes out, we just add it to a pre-existing article. So we do that all the time. That's good to know. Yeah. Well, and Harriet Hall, I don't know if you know her. Um, she wrote for science-based medicine. So science-based medicine is considered a reliable source. And it's one of the few uh, areas where we can have writing about alternative medicine. They really focus in on that. And she was a regular contributor and she died, unfortunately, this last year. But she was amazing. I had, I was part of a, a group, uh, or I am part of a group on Facebook that's for chronic migraine sufferers. And it's been a really good group when it started, it was very, very science-based. So that's why I stuck around as it grew and it grew and it grew. It's, I don't know, close to 2000 members now, I think. Some of the fringe started to come in, but the group was really good at moderating it. Like the, the leaders were very good at moderating it and making sure it didn't get too crazy, but they can't know everything. So all of a sudden they were talking about these patches that you could get. They're about this big and you stick them on your stomach or your head or something. I don't know where you stuck them. And it would get rid of migraine because of the nano something or other that was embedded in them that would do whatever. <laughs> I can't remember everything. My, my old, uh, my middle boy is, is a PhD in electrical engineering. And I said, I sent it to him and I said, what is this? And he went, it's gobbledygook. It doesn't say anything. <laughs> it <doesn't> work. <laughs> so we, I, reached out to Harriet Hall. And this is one of the 
great things about being an editor is you say, hey, I'm with Susan Gerbic's Girl of Skepticism on Wikipedia editors. And I also told her I did Christiane Northrup's page because a lot of her stuff that she wrote about her ended up in my article. And she writes back to me and says, oh my God, this is crazy. She wrote about it in science-based medicine. And then, yeah. So, <laughs> and it was wonderful because then I was able to go back to the group and say, hey, this is what uh, what this, this lady says, who's a doctor. And people were like, oh, does this mean this other thing is no good? And does it, it, there was this huge discussion all of a sudden. And somebody else also posted saying, I got taken for, I can't remember, thousands of dollars because I fell into this. So please be careful. Don't fall into this stuff. So being part of this organization is feels powerful in some respects in in being able to tackle this, even if it is just a drop in a huge ocean. It feels like sometimes it's, yeah. it's something. Yes, it is. It is definitely like I was just completely taken back by your your talk when when we were at the conference because I mean this is this is all of this stuff, the misinformation, the the lack of fact checking on social media and stuff like that. That is what has caused us to lose people that we love. And you guys are actively fighting that. So that's it's huge for me. And I know it's gonna be huge for my listeners. So Oh, it's awesome. And and the more people we get, the more we can fight it too. It's it's so important. So important. Even if it is just a few people at a time. It's better than not having that to happen. So we'll, we'll fight. We'll keep fighting. It's, it's a good fight. And it's, you're among friends too, right? When you're with the group, which is really nice. You probably found that, I, I found that with the conference, right? Like, oh, it's so nice to be around yes, all these people. That was nice. <laughs> it was nice to be around. And you, you knew that everybody around you kind of was on the same level as you. It was nice. It was very nice. You could speak frankly. Yes. Yes, exactly. Just be exactly who you are. <laughs> <laughs> are there any pages on Wikipedia that are just like a constant battleground of editors? Yeah. The anti-vax pages, especially during COVID were huge. And a lot of them were locked down because of it. So they were well-watched. We actually have another Canadian editor from Montreal who really watches those. And he's written a lot of those pages himself. And yeah, those were very, very active, very, uh, very um, controversial. Lots of talk on the talk pages about various things and lots of battles going on. Uh, the other one that I can think of off the top of my head is Scientology. And, you know, Scientology has been in the news a lot more recently, and it's off, often a locked down, they're locked down pages as well. And we actually have uh, one editor in particular right now who's really taking an interest in the Scientology pages, partly because they were, they've gone through that. So they're ex, as far as I understand. And others have done that as well. Like Susan Gerbic is very interested in the whole Scientology um, what would you call it? I don't know. Phenomena. <laughs> Movement. <laughs> Phenomena. So there's there's a few people who take an interest in that and will look at the pages. But 
you know, those are the two off the top of my head. Probably very quickly would be anti-vax, but I would I would guess that the QAnon ones as well would be way up there, it, especially during the pandemic and and maybe not so much now, but it's still there, as you know, it's still a problem. Vaccines are definitely one of the issues that affect all of our guests and all of our listeners probably the most. And that's what kind of triggered um, my anger with my parents when I found out that they went down the QAnon rabbit hole was because like, especially my parents are in their seventies. Right. And when the COVID pandemic was roaring, you worry about them. You don't want to see them get sick. You don't want to see them on a ventilator in the hospital. And so it's very upsetting when people that you love refuse to believe in the efficacy of, of very safe vaccines mm-hmm. and um, and are taking that kind of a risk. Um, we actually ended up getting my parents vaccinated. So, yeah, that was part of your story. Congratulations on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're still a little, uh, a little, con- they're in the conspiracy theories, but at least I know that they have that. I, think, I was just wondering if they were concerned for their safety because they've had the vaccine. Are they worried that they have like chips or something that's happening? My dad, shortly after his second dose, had a brain bleed. Um, and they're convinced that it was caused by the... My parents are convinced that it was caused by the vaccine. The doctor, on the other hand, showed us... Um, the image of his brain that proved that he'd been having these little micro bleeds for the last 10 years. So, I mean, it's logical to assume that it had nothing to do with the vaccine and it was just going to happen either way. Bad timing. Yeah, I don't believe that brain bleeds are associated with the vaccine. I think it was, in fact, the opposite even though minute, the risk was with the AstraZeneca vaccine and it was clots, which is the opposite of a brain bleed. So. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but it's brain, so it's in the same area, right? So we logic it. Yeah, yeah. Very badly, but that's how we do. We jump to these associations. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you've, you've seen the people on Twitter and stuff like that, but they're like, they will associate anybody dying, anybody getting sick, anybody hurting themselves with being vaccinated. Like their first question is, are they vaccinated? They could get shot and be like, it's because they were vaccinated. They died suddenly. It was the whole died suddenly phenomena, right? They were really searching for anybody that would die suddenly and therefore vaccine. It's all anecdotal and it's all just a gut feeling that they have it none of it is based in any science whatsoever and it's funny because i think somebody asked me the question um at the conference that that made me say that my parents like i asked my mom um she pointed out that everybody's biased and i was like i totally agree with you everybody has biases and when i asked her how do we, like, what would you propose that we do to strip these biases? And she essentially, like, worked it out through our conversation, worked out the scientific method. And and at the end of her saying this, I was like, Mom, do you, do you understand that that is science, right? Like, that is what we do with science. And when you're reading a scientific paper that has been peer-reviewed and, and um, repeated over and over and over again with the same results. That is essentially what you just explained to me. So um, 
that was um interesting she still she still refuses to to see that can't see the there's still that gap between her understanding what needs to be done versus what she's doing yes yeah so it's it's frustrating but um are there any pages on wikipedia that have been edited a little, edited a lot that would surprise people That's a good question. I don't think I actually have an answer for that one. I do have kind of a fun little quip that we learn in training, though, that it's not really associated with that. But one of the places to look for vandalism, if you want to witness vandalism on Wikipedia, would be watching out for a major event like the Super Bowl. So when the Super Bowl is on and they announce who the halftime show is, for example. So, you know, there was Jennifer Lopez one year and, and, um, just gone blank. It doesn't matter. Shakira. So Shakira, Shakira and Jennifer Lopez. And on the day of the Super Bowl, because they're performing on their pages, on the Super Bowl page, Jennifer Lopez's and Shakira's page, most likely some vandalism is going to occur where people just put in something goofy. So isn't that weird? It is, but they're going to be reverted very quickly. So you're actually going to have to refresh your page to see it because it's probably going to appear and then it's going to disappear very, very quickly because there's also going to be a lot of Wikipedia editors who are watching that page at that time, as well as the bots, because they know this is going to happen. So that's so interesting. Isn't that crazy? Why do people do that? Because they can it's true. Anybody can edit Wikipedia. <laughs> and, you know, some of them are probably high school kids or, you know, kids in a group at a Super Bowl party. Oh, let's do this. Oh, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's not meant to be malicious. It's just being goofy. And it's most likely going to happen on that day. But there are people who really are, they're getting angry about something and they're, they think they can just put it onto that page and it'll stick. And then, no, it's not going to stick. So anybody can edit. However, most of those edits are not going to stick. I've had edits that have been reverted. I, I kind of feel like I know what I'm doing, <laughs> but I've had edits. Yeah, no, that's no good. You learn, right? And, and they give good reason usually. And it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's fair. And, you know, I've changed wording and then people go, no, 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 the original wording was better. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they were, you know, I'm going to stick with that. So yeah, I think other than that, I don't really, I can't really think of a surprising page. To me, I guess it was surprising to find out that my most watched pages or my most viewed pages are around ghosts because I came from a secular family who did not believe in ghosts, <clears throat> who always said, no, they don't exist. So it was a real surprise to me that there's so much interest in ghosts and the belief in ghosts. So it's interesting to me because it's unfamiliar to me as to why people believe in ghosts. I mean, I get it now. Yeah. When, when I was a kid, I was into like ghost stories and stuff like that. I don't know to what degree I, I actually believed. Um, I think I convinced myself sometimes that I believed in ghosts, but I didn't really I've always been very skeptical, um, you know, in situations where if you really believed in ghosts, you'd be scared. I was never scared. So, <laughs> um, and I loved like 
movies, spooky movies and stuff like that. I love thinking about that stuff. But it's something that like the interest in that kind of waned as I got older. And like, I still love a good spooky movie and stuff like that. But I just like, I don't, it's just so ridiculous to me, the idea of a ghost, right? (laughs) It's strange to me that adults still believe in that stuff. And and I'm not trying to offend anybody who does believe in ghosts. Like, it's just strange for me. Yeah. And that's, I think the thing is, is if you're, if you grow up in, for example, with religion, it's not, it, it makes total sense. It's, it's, it's just that I didn't grow up in religion. It didn't make sense. Well, and I have a ghost story I can tell. Can I tell my ghost story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was five years old. I think at five or six, my dad was on night shift. So it was just my mom and I at home. And in the middle of the night, I was woken up with footsteps. And I thought they were outside my window. So I looked out my window, nothing there. Okay, maybe I was dreaming. Went back to sleep. Even at five years old, I was thinking <laughs> maybe I was dreaming. And then I went back to sleep, more footsteps. Looked outside, nothing. Well, now I'm freaking out and crying, mom, mom, mom. My mom comes, what is it? I heard footsteps. Well, then we heard more footsteps and she heard them too. So she, we, she didn't want to check it out because, you know, it's just the two of us were kind of freaked out. So I went and got to sleep in bed with mom as a five-year-old. It was awesome. So woke up the next morning, my dad comes home and we discovered the source of the footsteps. In those days, my parents would buy huge sacks of potatoes from the farmers. And there was a big sack that was on the landing going down to the basement and it had fallen over and they had rolled out gradually and <laughs> bump, 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 bump down the stairs. <laughs> and after that, I was never afraid of ghosts because I realized there's an explanation here. <laughs> and that was, and that was my indoctrination into reason, I guess. And my parents were laughing. We still laugh about that story, right? And my dad's like, oh, you guys. <laughs> but my mom was thinking there was somebody outside and we just couldn't see them, right? I mean, that's a logical conclusion as well, but not ghosts. <laughs> but I, as a five-year-old, I thought it was a ghost so because you couldn't see anybody. <laughs> it's just a scary to think that there's somebody outside though. <laughs> I, I, I agree. I think that's why my mom was freaked out right? Because we just couldn't see the person as not a ghost. So that means it's a real person. So we'll just keep the doors locked and, and hopefully we'll be okay. <laughs> we were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there's some horror movies that start out that way. <laughs> exactly. And I was really big into ghosts as well growing up because I love Stephen King and anything like that. I read all his books and, but I never, I just thought it was fiction and it was fun fiction. And to learn that people as an older adult, I mean, I was retired when I learned the number of people who really do believe in ghosts. So that was eye-opening to me. Very interesting that those are my most Interestingly, watched. the one movie that scared me, um, that like I didn't usually get scared by these movies, but this one movie scared me because it was the Mothman prophecies. And it was because in that movie... The Silver Bridge collapses. Sorry, spoilers. It's like a 30-year-old movie. So <laughs> um, no, maybe 20s. Um, 
the Silver Bridge collapses in that movie. And it's like the movie claims to be based on historical events. And I had the week prior just watched a documentary on the collapse of the Silver Bridge. So it made the whole movie very real for me. Wow. (laughs) That was the one time I got quite spooked by a movie, but it has to, like, it had to have an element of reality to it. (laughs) And they usually do. I think that's what makes them frightening is is we do have these fears. We do. I remember going to see the movie cat people and uh, what's, what's our biggest fear is I I remember growing up with something under the bed, you know, reaching out and grabbing your legs. And that's what happens in that movie. I didn't put my feet down at night off my bed for like months (laughs) afterwards, even though I knew it was just a movie. It's just that just a little too close to home. (laughs) Our own fears that are irrational, but uh, they still are there. Hard to fight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I still have an irrational fear of spiders. So <laughs> well, you're not alone on that one. <laughs> Don't go to Australia. <laughs> I I lived in Australia for two years. <laughs> oh, so you know, I just was there in a couple months ago, and you know, I guess the big ones don't hurt you, but boy, are they creepy. They're creepy. Yeah, we had a house in Adelaide, and it had the whole back wall was glass. And at night, it would be like 10 or 11 huntsmen crawling up the back of our house. And we'd just sit there, all four of us, in utter horror. And my my parents would drink themselves to be able to, to sleep because that was the only way they could sleep. And they finally were like, we're going to become alcoholics if we don't do something about this. And they had our house fumigated. And that was the end of that. So oh, That's good. Oh, that's... So you like there's there's a basis to your fear. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I was afraid of it before then, but um but yeah. This is worse. No, wow. Spiders don't work very well for me. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that um we oft we often come across when we're arguing with our cues or debating with our cues about the things that they believe is when we use Wikipedia as a source, they're very quick to say you can't use Wikipedia as a source because it can be edited by anyone. What What is your suggestion for for a way to rebut that? I think agree with them because it's true. With the codicil that, yes, anybody can edit. However, it has become self-governed to the point where it's very difficult to have bad information on there. And to have the discussion that, There are still pages that we discover every once in a while that were made when Wikipedia was first developed. And they're awful. (laughs) They're just like people writing stories almost, right? Like it's just, there's, there's no citations. It's just like paragraphs of not good information. So agree. I think, you know, you find that common ground. So don't just say, no, you're wrong, but say, yeah, you're right. Everybody can edit it. Uh, and ask the question, but have you noticed any articles that are well-written, that are uh, reliably sourced? Have you checked the resources? What are the resources? Can you give me an example of a page that is poorly resourced? And if they can do that, then you can go and have that discussion, I think, and look at the page together. And you can, if you find one that's terrible, which is possible, then you can go, yeah, wow, that's terrible. Now let's try and find a good one. Let's see if we can find some good ones. And how many good ones can we find? My guess is you're, it's going to be hard to find the bad ones. 
it's not impossible, but it's going to be hard to find those bad ones. And uh, as a teacher, I ran into that a lot too, where teachers would say, you're not allowed to use Wikipedia. And I did some subbing for a while after I retired and they had this project and this one kid had to find out about this really obscure engine that I'd never heard of. And he was supposed to research this. And I said, well, let's go to Wikipedia. Well, my teacher says we're not allowed to go to Wikipedia. I said, okay, well, let's go to Wikipedia. I'm going to show you a little trick. And so we went to Wikipedia. There was a whole article about this obscure engine I'd never heard of. And we went down to the citations at the bottom, the references. And I said, okay, now you're going to use these references and you're going to check them out. This is your starting point. One of the references was actually to the patent office. One of the things he had to find is where was this made? What year? Boom. We had the information. He was so excited. So there, I think pointing out the good parts of Wikipedia, agreeing, yeah, that is one of the things that makes it potentially a problem and going and looking, let's look, let's look together. Give me an example. Cause quite often they can't give you an example. It's just rhetoric, right? So specific examples and let's look at it together and let's see how reliable the sources are and let's learn. Let's find out. You may be right. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. Keeps the conversation going. Yeah. It's a really good starting point, I think, is Wikipedia is a place to launch your research because it has the citations. So you can go and check yourself how reliable that information is. And, um, and that's what I, like, my mom said that to me several times about different things. Oh, you can't use Wikipedia. And I'm like, well, mom, I'm not telling you to just use Wikipedia as the sole source here. It's, it's their citations in the bottom and you can click through to them and, and read them and find out whether or not the information on this page is reliable or not. And then go that next next step with just saying, find me that bad one with the bad resources. Show me, show me that. And they may go to a QAnon page or an anti-vax page and say, look, this is bad information because vaccines are bad. Well, what source here do you not like? So you can start having that discussion and that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. I learned that from Susan's workshop. <laughs> Give her a plug. <laughs> um, so how do people become an editor? Because I know that there's probably going to be some people interested. Yeah, that's awesome. So the first thing you do is you friend Susan Gerbica on Facebook. She's easy to find. Just go to Facebook and one of the big problems we've encountered is people say, well, I don't use Facebook. And unfortunately, that means you probably can't become an editor because we communicate via Facebook. That's what we use. And if you want, create a fake account. You don't have to use your own name. Just let Susan Gerbic know who you are. Right? So that's all that matters. She can keep that information confidential. And we do have that. We have people in there that I really don't know their real names because... They just don't trust Facebook for whatever you know reason. I was not a Facebook user. I didn't know how to use Facebook until I became an editor. So go onto Facebook, create an account, friend Susan Gerbeck, private message her through Messenger, which is a Facebook message system. Say who you are, give her your email address so that she has that way of communicating with you as well. And then she's going to send you 
a about a two hour, what we call a pre-training because some people think, oh, I'm going to do this. I can do this. And then they get to the training and they go, yeah, that's not for me. And that's fine, right? It's not for everybody. And I encourage those of you who think you're not tech savvy, you don't have to be tech savvy. There's a wide range of people that Susan Gerbic is not tech savvy. And yet she's in there all the time. She's figured this out. Two hours, you do the pre-training, get it done within the week and send it to her. If you decide to stay, you'll then get introduced into the secret cabal or the not so secret cabal. And you'll be given, everything's done in a spreadsheet, everything you do at your own pace, at your own time. And if you do a couple hours a week, you're probably going to finish in about four to five months. So it's not intensive. You don't have to be doing 10 hours a day. It's not a course, like it's not a university course. This is done and it's fun. Some of it, a lot of it is reading about interesting stuff or doing just interesting things, lots of videos. So it's, you know, visuals, you can see how it looks on the screen and you just go through each of the different steps and you graduate and then you can edit whatever you want. So do you have to edit pseudoscience or science? No, you can do whatever you want. It just may not be for that project and won't be on Stat Badger, so you won't get your stats. But I've edited stuff on trains. I've edited stuff on all kinds of things. Because once you can edit, you'll see something missing and you go, oh, I'm going to fix that. So it's, and that's a good thing. You actually want that. You want that. You don't want to be known as a single editor. So people who only do, say, vaccination could get flagged. They want editors on Wikipedia. This isn't Susan's policy. This is Wikipedia's. They want people who will just better Wikipedia in general. So, you know, if you do those random little edits, they see that as a good thing. So that, and that's it. So contact Susan. And as I say, it takes about four to five months for training. And then you're good to go. And then you're part of the group and you can do whatever you want. And hopefully you stick around. <laughs> yeah. What are some of your highlights of, of being a, an editor? Oh, I think my biggest highlight is probably the Winchester Mystery House uh, in, in the respect of how many views I have. Like I've got, I think it's almost 700,000 views on that page. And I just did it last September. I know, isn't that crazy? <laughs> but probably my favorite, and that's a different thing. That was, my, that was the most surprising one was the Winchester Mystery House. My favorite was Lady Ganga. And it's one that I did that's, um, doesn't have a lot of views. Probably because it happened, I think, in um, mid-2000s. So Lady Ganga is Kendrick Fraser's daughter. And Kendrick Fraser is the, or was, sorry, the editor for Skeptical Inquirer magazine. And I never had the honor of meeting him. So remember that conflict of interest thing I talked about? I didn't know any of his family. So I was able to do his daughter's page. And she became a big proponent of the HPV vaccine because she ended up with cervical cancer. And she didn't have a pap test for 10 years. And as a result, when they diagnosed her, it was not good. It was, the prognosis was not good. And after several treatments, she was given only months to live. And she was very outdoorsy. She loved teaching kayaking, giving river tours, like she was a tour guide. And 
so she loved the outdoors and she decided to learn how to stand up paddle in her last months of life and then to paddle down the Ganges River in India to bring awareness to the HPV vaccine and pap tests and for women to make sure they had these things and that boys were vaccinated as well. So her last months were spent paddling down the Ganges River, over 700 miles, if I remember correctly. It hit, like she became, uh, she became Lady Ganga to the local people in India. She became a local hero. And she was covered by CNN and it was covered. There was no, notability was not an issue with this one. It has just never been made. The page has never been done. And I took that one on and it was, I'm actually getting tingles right now. I was crying a lot, a lot of crying. There's, there was a movie made about her and I cried through that. And it was such a lovely and inspiring story. So that's probably my favorite one that I did. It was, it was really hard. (laughs) It was really hard. And I never got to meet Kendrick, which I'm very sad about, but you know, I'm hoping to meet maybe some of his other family members at some point in my life, because uh, that was a very special story, very special lady. And so check that out. I can't wait to read that. So not Lady Gaga, (laughs) but Lady Ganga. And it's a, it's a really nice page. And there's links to the video, I believe on the page, if they're still working. And if they're not, let me know and I will fix that. Cool. So besides um, the guerrilla skeptics on Wikipedia, what do you think are some of the ways that we can combat misinformation on social media and stuff like that? That's a really good question. And I actually recently asked that same question to Jonathan Jerry. And if you're familiar with his work out of the McGill, um, McGill University Office of Science and Society. And one of the things he said was share on social media as much as you can his work and others' work, such as science-based medicine, because he can print it, but then the only way to get it known is to, for people to keep sharing. So just like what the QAnon people are doing, we need to do the same thing and not be shy. I had that problem when I first was part of the Wikipedia project, and Susan Gerbic is very good. She just shares anything that she feels is important. I was a bit afraid of the whole Facebook thing, like I think a lot of people are. And I was on tour with her and she's like, start posting your pictures of, come on, post them on Facebook. No, who's going to want to know anything about me? But I started posting and people did start liking and sharing. So I have, I'm still working on it. I still have trouble because I'm thinking, oh, there's, you know, friends that have different beliefs than me and they're not going to like this. But then the ones who do have the same beliefs, hopefully will share it. Right. So that's, I'm trying to get over that. So share on social media, share those articles, spread the word. So I think that's one way. And I think not being shy about having difficult conversations with people, but being kind and finding that common ground. I think that's step one and just gradually building up the trust so that maybe today you don't make a difference and you don't change their mind, but you become that person that they go, hey, you know, I had a good conversation with them and I'm thinking I'm changing my mind. I'm going to go back and talk to them again. So that openness. So I think that would work as well. And I think the kind of things you're doing, Courtney, podcasting, you know, all these things together are, are, are so important. I think they come together, conferences, 
But I think a big one is sharing, sharing as much as we can so it gets out there. But that's really good advice. Thanks. It's I struggle with the Facebook thing too. <laughs> do, do you? Yeah, it's hard. And but I'm getting better. Yeah, it's I I haven't logged into my personal Facebook account. I think you messaged me on Facebook. I did. And I was like, I never check this. It's because I don't. Like it's <laughs> I just every time I log into Facebook, I see stuff being posted by people that I know in real life that makes me horrified. And I just you know, I, I want to be able to, I live in a very small town. So I want to be able to go to the grocery store and say hi to somebody and smile and just, I don't need to know what they feel about this or that. Like, I just don't want to know that stuff. Yeah. Well, start friending, friending me and other people like me and your Facebook feed changes a lot. It's quite, it's amazing. And, but what's good is I still have my, I still have my core friends and my biggest fear was that, oh my goodness, they're not going to, want to talk to me anymore because I'm have such different beliefs with ghosts and things like that. And that has not turned out to be true. We're still friends. And we, and what's happened too is we can now talk about it. You know, I even had a friend who just point blank said, do you believe what I just said? And I said, well, (laughs) if you want an honest answer, And we had a great, and we ended up having a great discussion. But we were able to do that. And I don't think without me being honest on Facebook, it would have happened. So that's something I'm working on. And Twitter is another one. I just I just found so much negativity there. I just couldn't handle it. But I'm trying to go back and promote stuff on Twitter. It's I'm I struggle with that one, but I think it's an important one. It's an important one. I'm probably most active on Twitter, but I hate it. <laughs> It's like, it's just the other day I posted something. Um, I was talking about trans rights and um, essentially it was a tweet asking people just to be nice. And my, my, my mentions for the past two days have just been toxic. Just, I have avoided it. I have not logged in. Like every time I log in, I see something horrific and I'm just like, I'm, I need to take a break. I got it. I, I just find because of the the limited amount of space that you can write it's just it, it's it is toxic and i think people i find this too sometimes when you write even an email it can seem blunt right when really you're quite in your mind you're writing this lovely email and then the person says well that was a bit blunt or they'll say, you know so twitter is just that on steroids right it's just that much worse and it's bad. I, so I struggle with that, but I'm trying. I've got like three tweets all together. <laughs> and they were around the week in recent conference. And I, I really struggle. I got to do better. I got to do better. Got to follow my own advice and do that. Same with Instagram and all these other things. It's just too much for my brain. It is a lot. Like you have to, I find that I can put my time and effort into one. <laughs> And the rest will suffer. <laughs> but I mean, I'm a mom. I have other work to do. And, you know, I have stuff that, yeah, Twitter's fine. I'll log in every little once in a while and start a flame war. That's fine. <laughs> You've got my interest. I might have to log in today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So where, speaking of social media, where can people find you? 
Ah, so I do have a website now. It's zonegiggler.ca, which is very silly, <laughs> but it kind of, uh, it, it, it is what it is. And so that's one place. And the other place is Facebook. So feel free to reach out and Facebook friend me. And I'm easy to find. It's just Adrian Hill. And you will see my Skeptic Zone podcast image as my picture. So not, not hard to find. So those are probably the two best places. And, and from the website, you can email me, reach out, whatever. Okay. I'll, I'll make sure that I put links to all of that in the description, as well as um, I'll, I'll get the URL for Susan's Facebook so that people can contact her if they want to sign up to be an editor, which I'm hoping that a lot of, or some of my listeners will, because you know, one of the things that I've talked about a few times on my podcast is that this is kind of a way, like feeling like you're doing something about it is a way to cope with yes. the loss of a loved one down the rabbit hole. You know what I mean? It's yeah, very therapeutic. Absolutely. So it, it, it has been so therapeutic for me, you know, when I was just dealing with my own stuff. So it's huge. And actually, you know, I'm going to, can I segue back to your question about what can we do? <laughs> I think number one, I mean, here I am talking about Wikipedia for an hour. And number one is become a Wikipedia editor. <laughs> yeah, there <laughs> you, know? you go. There you go. You know, millions of views, right? I mean, on my Facebook page, I might get 50 p people who go like, right? There might be a couple hundred who see it. But Wikipedia, it's millions. So Susan would really be upset with me for not saying that one first. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> at, least I, at least I remembered. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, I hope I hope that you guys get some new editors out of this for sure. I do too. Uh, we got we did get new editors out of the Seth Andrews interview that Susan Gerbic did, so that was really awesome. So being on these podcasts, and I think that's probably the biggest way we've got new editors. I didn't come that way. I found it out of an article from Science Based Medicine, but most of them I, I would guess are, are because of of podcasts like this. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us. This has been really, really interesting. And I know that our listeners is going to, are going to get a lot out of this and maybe feel some hope because a lot of our stories aren't that hopeful. So I, you know, I, I'm looking for different ways to offer our listeners a little bit of hope. So thank you very much for joining us. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's, it's been a blast. Thanks so much to Adrian for joining us and telling us about Gorilla Skeptics on Wikipedia. If you're looking for a way to feel like you're fighting this QAnon phenomenon, I can't think of a better avenue than becoming a GSOW and fighting to ensure our most accessible resources are factual. You can find Adrian and the Skeptic Zone podcast on Twitter. The links for both are in the show notes. We've also included links to Susan Gerbic's Facebook in case you want to send her a message to become a GSOW yourself. We would be forever grateful if you could review and rate this podcast on your favorite podcast platforms so more people can find it. Also, head on over to Patreon to hear Patreon-only episodes, bonus clips, and ad-free versions of all of our content. We're back next week with the story of two sisters whose QAnon parents haven't even met their grandchild thanks to a schism in the family created by conspiracy theories. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite platform to get notified when that goes live. And thanks for listening. <laughs>